Well, good morning, gents. Looked like a few of our brothers decided to stay in bed this morning. And I tell you what, when I got out to my iced up car, I thought that might not be a bad idea today. They can listen to us on tape. Or maybe they're getting back from a skiing vacation in Colorado. Hope all their bones are in place when they come back. Well, I hope your favorite team won. All you Louisville fans are just thrilled this morning. I didn't watch that game. I woke up this morning and just checked the score, and I went, what? Did they got this wrong? This is supposed to be the other way around. That's amazing. Some upsets. Well, there's going to be one more big upset. Uh, people don't think that the Christians are going to win in the end. Let me tell you something. When Jesus comes back, there's going to be a lot of people surprised. Uh, yes, sir. All right, let's turn to our Bibles, in our Bibles, to Matthew chapter 9, verse 35. We, last semester spend our whole time on one sermon of Jesus. Uh, one of these days I'm going to preach a sermon like that. Uh, no, it'll, it'll be my, when I get to heaven finally. But think about a sermon that people like ourselves would take a whole semester to unpack. And it took about 15 minutes for him to deliver that sermon. And there was some sermon. And we saw why when we studied it. Uh, the most glorious exposition of what it means to be a real follower of Jesus Christ is in that text. And what it means uh, to walk with him daily from the heart. Wow, what a powerful text. And what it means to have a real prayer relationship with him. To have a, a, a real trust in him. And uh, what it means then really to believe the gospel. And we saw how incisive Jesus' words were at the closing of that sermon in chapter 7. Uh, when he says, many will say to me on that last day, Lord, Lord, uh, did we not do this, that, and the other? But I'll say to them, depart from me, you evildoers. I never knew you. Why? Because what's most important is trusting Christ, not all the things that we do. And hypocrisy is so powerful and so deceptive. Jesus cut right through that in that Sermon on the Mount. Well, we come today to the beginning of a study that will take us through this month, studying his sermon on mission, which is a very important sermon because... Uh, it's not just who we are, but it really is also, well, then what do we do? What do Christians do? I remember a story some years ago about a man who just graduated from law school, and he was walking down the sidewalk, whistling. He was very, very happy, and he had the misfortune of running into a philosophy professor. Uh, you know, philosophy professors can really ruin your day if you're not careful. And this philosophy professor uh, just asked this man, said, who are you? And he told him, and he said, well, why are you so happy today? The man said, well, I just graduated from such and such law school, a very prestigious law school. And the professor said to him, so then what are you going to do after that? He said, well, I'm going to, I've just joined uh, this uh, firm here in town, you know, the finest firm in town. And he said, as an associate, and one day I'm, I'm planning to make partner. And he says, well, what are you going to do after that? And he said, well, I'm going to make a lot of money, I hope. And then he said, so what are you going to do after that? And he said, well, I've noticed that this town has some beautiful ladies in it. I intend to meet one of them uh, who's not only beautiful but charming and intelligent. And I intend to marry her and we're going to have children. We're going to enjoy those. So then what are you going to do after that, he said. And he said, well, after that, uh, you know, I'll enjoy my children growing up, going to their basketball games and, and going ultimately to their wedding. And So what are you going to do after that? He said, well, I'm going to play with my grandchildren. And uh, I'm going to go to their ball games and to their plays. And, and then he said, what are you going to do after that? And the lawyer just walked away, didn't have anything to say. It's a good question. What are you going to do after that? Just keep it going. What are you going to do after that? And after a while, you realize, you know, all these goals that we set for ourselves are so short-term, so limited in their duration and in their value. And what the Bible is reminding us of is that our souls scream out for something after that something that's transcendent in our lives, a mission, a purpose for being here that takes us through everything in life into the next life. That's the reason it's so important for us to study Jesus Christ, to listen to him carefully, and be sure that our lives are set upon that eternal mission. Now, the way we're going to do this is, first of all, uh, look at what Jesus himself is doing. In chapter 10, uh, is, is, that's typically seen as the beginning of his sermon, but I want us to back up and look at uh, verses uh, 35 through 39, because, or rather 38, because here uh, we see the very ministry of Jesus himself. And what is our mission? 
Well, the most succinct uh, verse I know that describes our mission is given by Jesus uh, in two places. The first one is in the high priestly prayer in John 17 when he says, Father, uh, just as you sent me into this world, so I send them. And he says to them later in John, as the Father has sent me, so I send you. There actually is a hymn to that title, So Send I You, right? And that's our mission. Just as the Father sent the Son into this life, so the Father and the Son are sending us in this life in the same way. So then, duh, we just look at Jesus Christ, what His mission is, how He goes about it, that's what we're to be. We're to be imitators of Jesus Christ. That's the reason that we're called Christians when we believe. Little Christs. So let's look at Christ in His mission. It's very clear here in verses 35 through 38. And let's then apply that to our lives to be sure that our lives likewise have a very clear transcendent mission in them. Let's begin with verse 35. And by the way, uh, Jesus has, of course, completed the Sermon on the Mount, chapters 5 through 7. And then chapters 8 and 9 are a series of His miraculous deeds and His deeds of compassion. So you have word and mercy, proclamation and mercy in, in ver- chapters 5 through 7 and then chapters 8 and 9. That's important. We'll come back to that in a moment. But now we come to the end of 9 and moving toward his statements on mission. Verse 35, And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. First thing we want to notice in verse 35 is, We go where Jesus goes. We go where Jesus goes. Where did Jesus go? Well, it says Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages. That is to say, Jesus goes where there are big populations and where there are small populations. He goes where there are upscale people and downscale people. He goes where there are professional people and working class people. He goes where there are people who are uh, living in uh, in wealth and people who are very poor. He goes to all different types of folks. Uh, that's where Jesus goes. And that's where our mission takes us, to all the cities and villages of the world. Because Jesus said, and I'm citing the text here, He says, go into all the world. Make disciples of all nations, He says. All ethnoi, which are all ethnic groups. We have about 16,000 of them uh, in our world, and about 6,000 of them have absolutely no Christian witness in them at all. This is an entire ethno-linguistic group, group that speaks a common language and has a common cultural heritage. There are 6,000 of those in this world that have no Christian witness. Jesus went to every city and village, and so we are to go as well. That's the first thing about his mission is that he intends for his ministry to go to every place. So when you become a Christian, you take on immediately a concern that everybody in your neighborhood, everybody in your community, everybody in your metropolitan area, everybody in your country, everybody in your world is going to hear the gospel and have an opportunity to see it lived out and to have a community, a church plant there where they can they can observe how life is lived as Christian people together. That immediately becomes part of your mission. I'm so glad that when I became a Christian 35 years ago, two things were stressed in the little church uh, where I became a Christian. One was that we were really going to worship God and that our worship services were not times of just simply being entertained. And they were not even times primarily of hearing a sermon, but they were moments for the family of God to come together to bow down and give God his due worship. I'm so grateful 
that as soon as I was converted, our church was teaching me that. The second thing I'm so grateful the little church taught me was that when you become a Christian, you become a missionary. You must immediately engage yourself in the mission of Christ. It's not an add-on. It's not an optional uh, 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 part of your life. It is of the very essence of your life. And the reason is, as the Father sent the Son, so the Son sends us into His mission. And so from the very beginning, when I became a Christian, we, um, our little church cooperated with five or six other churches. We had a world missions conference. And that conference would, would have meetings every, week of the, uh, every night of the week. And we would rotate in the, among the churches. And we would have three or four missionaries in that all the churches together, the Baptists, the Methodists, the Presbyterians, so on, we would, and the Congregationalists, we would all together support those missionaries. And I'm so glad that early on in my conversion, in our home, we had missionaries staying with us uh, for that annual conference. Right off the bat, when I became a Christian, introduced to that. And so often, uh, that comes much later in your life when it kind of dawns on you that you're to be engaged in it. And sometimes folks will say, well, you know, I'll never be a missionary. Well, yes, you will. <laughs> You'll be a missionary right where you live, the school you go to or the business you work in or the neighborhood that you live in. You're a missionary right there, and you will participate in the church's mission. And that's the way it gets done. Of course, we have people who are professionally qualified, who are trained to go cross-culturally, who are acquiring new languages and so on, who are trained to go cross-culturally, but they cannot do that apart from the church praying for them, supporting them, commissioning them, sending them, resourcing them continually. We all engage in the work. And it's because you see it right here. Jesus went throughout all the cities and the villages. So, for example, if you're, if you're a Christian and you live in Memphis, Tennessee you have to think about 127 neighborhoods. Every neighborhood. It becomes our business to think about all those neighborhoods, to be aware of the news in all the neighborhoods, the murders, the poverty, the single motherhood, the schools that are in need. Every neighborhood in the city becomes ours. Why? Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, none of which had any of the population of the 127 neighborhoods in this city. So if we're going through all the cities and villages, we're going through all the neighborhoods of Memphis and seeing that they have the necessities that the Christian ministry offers, and those are many necessities. So you see the heart of the Lord Jesus Christ. We go where Jesus goes. And when the church begins to die, it's because it stopped going where Jesus goes and begins to become insulated and stick just to its own knitting. It's, you know... My four, no more, that kind of mentality. And when that happens, the church is going to die because Christ is not empowering that church. It's obvious. You can tell by looking at it. Christ must not be there because when Christ is there, the church has an explosive concern for the people around them in cities and villages or we could say neighborhoods, and they have concern for the world. Secondly, uh, look in the second part of verse 35. That should be 35A and 30, uh, I don't know what that should be. Let's see. Uh, yeah, 35B. That's right, 35B. Uh, we do what Jesus does. <clears throat> so we go where he goes, and when we go there, we do what he does. Now, <clears throat> this is significant, as I mentioned. If you'll turn back to chapter 4, verse 23, look at this verse just a few pages back in Matthew chapter 4, verse 23. And he went throughout all Galilee teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, healing every disease and every affliction among the people, and so on. You get the same language right here in verse 35. Why? Moses is... I'm, Moses. <laughs> I'm, I'm only about two years off here. Uh, Matthew is using that language as bookends to a whole section of Matthew. And he's basically saying, well, now... Okay, Jesus has been baptized. He's beginning his public ministry. Let me tell you what he did. He went teaching, preaching, and healing. And then Matthew shows us the classic example of Jesus' teaching, Matthew 5 through 7, and then his healing in verses, chapters 8 and 9, and then he comes to the end of 9 and gives us that bookend. He says, here's what Jesus did. He went throughout all of Galilee or all the cities and villages teaching, preaching, and healing. So those bookends show us this is the ministry of Jesus. So in the first chapters 4, 23 
through 938, you get that first sort of summarizing presentation of what Jesus came to do. It's a wonderful section of Scripture. Now let's unpack then verse 35b to see what it is Jesus actually did. And Matthew puts it in three categories. Three categories. And they're extremely important as we think about our personal mission and the mission in which we're engaged in the world. Now remember, some of us may be particularly gifted at the healing arts. Some of us may be particularly gifted at the teaching art. Uh, but when we engage in the church, the whole church does all three. So you may have a particular gift where you're making a contribution to the church's ministry, but the church as a whole takes all three, and so do we because of that. We may not be prominently gifted in one or the other, but we still have a great concern for it and do what we can to aid and abet in that area. And certainly when we join the church, we find that she's engaged in all three of these things. The first one is teaching. He went throughout all the cities and villages and what's the first thing Matthew mentions to us? Teaching. Some years ago when we studied Mark, we saw that Mark really emphasized Jesus as teacher. And certainly in Matthew, with these five sermons, we're getting Jesus as teacher. Now the first thing I want us to notice about his teaching is that he, it says he was teaching in their synagogues. In their synagogues. This is extremely important. Notice that Jesus is not some irrational, anti-traditionalist, unconventional, counter-cultural. Yes, of course he's counter-cultural, but not unnecessarily counter-cultural. Notice that wherever Jesus can show respect for the existing institutions of his day, he shows respect for those institutions. We know how corrupt the Jewish leaders were. We know how off-base synagogue teaching was. We know how difficult it was for Jesus and later the apostles to get a hearing for a long period of time in the synagogues because the gospel of Christ made them angry. But nonetheless, Jesus shows respect for the synagogue and when he's 12 years of age, what do you find him doing? He is discussing theology with the rabbis in the synagogue, in the temple, in that case. But here he is in the synagogue showing great respect for the existing church. And Matthew Henry put it this way. He said, it is the wisdom of the prudent to make the best of that which is. It's the wisdom of the prudent to make the best of that which is. And so often we try to destroy institutions because we're not perfectly happy with everything about them. Notice that Jesus goes into the institution and of course it eventually destroys him temporarily. And eventually he comes out uh, in the resurrection and he condemns the institution as it is, but that's because he's replacing it with the new institution of the New Testament church. But here he shows great respect for the synagogue. I suggest we do the same thing. Uh, so often it's, it, it, you know, we get so frustrated with the institutional church. I understand. I mean, I've been in it for a while. I understand your frustrations. But... It's, it's the case that this is the institution God gave us. There is no other institution, a religious institution, that He has given us. It's the church. That's it. So let's all dive in and make the best of it that we can. There are moments when a church may go completely apostate on you and you have to wipe the dust off your feet and go on and, and, and work in the church in some other place. But you don't come out of that church into nothing. No, you decide that that church has become apostate and you go into another church and fully plug yourself in there. That's what Jesus was doing. He was teaching in their synagogues. Now let's, let's talk for just a moment about the, the significance of this teaching. You know, here uh, in, in just another chapter in Matthew 11, you have that famous text where Jesus says, All you who are weary and burdened come unto me. And when you, you are weary and burdened and you come unto him, what does he do for you? He says, take my yoke upon you and what? Learn of me. Christian discipleship is learning of Jesus Christ. When he tells the apostles to go to all the nations, what does he tell them to go do? Go baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but go teaching them to observe everything that I taught you. And what is everything he taught them? It's in Matthew's gospel right there. So we're to go to all the nations and teach. So the church, in one way of looking at the church, it is a teaching post. It is the, it is the Christian university, if you will. 
that we plant in nation after nation, city after city, village after village. What neighborhoods in Memphis need more than anything else are holistic, healthy, local churches that are wonderful teaching posts where people are hearing the Word of God in clarity and seeing it lived out practically. That's what this city and every city needs. So we, we see that it is the way in which we learn of Christ. And I've mentioned two verses here, Ephesians 4.20, Colossians 1.7. When Paul speaks of conversion, you'll notice in those two verses, he speaks of our learning Christ. We often use the language, I accepted Christ as my Savior. That language is not anywhere to be found in the New Testament. Uh, John 1, you have that, that for all who received him, so who, those who received Christ. But more common language is, we learned Christ. We were taught Christ. So how do you become a Christian? Someone teaches Christ to you. So teaching is the means often for conversion. I know, I know it was in my case. I learned Christ. I entered the church as an unbeliever and learned Christ through people who were communicating Him to me in the teaching of the Word. And that's how we are converted. It's how we are built up and matured as we learn Christ. I hope this, this year, 2013, you know, it's uh, already January the 3rd, and it's fine, but I hope this year you will make it one of your key objectives to be reading the Word of God every day. And if you haven't started out January 1 and 2, uh, start today, January the 3rd. Read the Bible every day. You know, if you just take one thought unit, for example, a thought unit is the text we're looking at today, and the reason I say that is there's a heading in the ESV here that says the harvest is plentiful, the labor is few in your Bible. And it runs down to the next heading that says the 12 apostles. Those thought units are just that. They're one major thought that the editors here have decided belongs in one pericope. If you just read one thought unit per day and then pray to the Lord about what it means to you, just like we're studying the text today, we're taking an hour, of course. You may not have the time to do that every day. But if you could take five minutes to meditate on what this text says to you about your life today, the very thing we do in Amen and take 15 minutes to do, if you can do that in about seven minutes every morning, take one thought unit and then just say to the Lord, Lord, what are you teaching me today about what you, who you want me to be, what you want me to do, how I can worship you, how you've loved me. Let me learn these things in this text today. Take it to him in prayer. Take seven minutes. It's not heroic. It's not rocket science. But if you just do that every day, think of that. 365 times one thought unit ends up being a whole bunch of chapters of the Bible, I'll tell you that. And you have your life suffused with the Word of God. That's the kind of teaching you want. The most important teacher in your life is yourself. <laughs> it is. You are the key teacher. And one reason we study the Bible in venues like this is so that we can all become self-taught people better and better as every year goes by. So as you, as you listen to your preacher, whoever he may be this weekend, or as you come to Amen or other Bible studies, you're not, learning, not only learning about what the Bible says in the text for that day, but you're learning how to approach a text yourself. You want to be self-taught. And then those of you who are fathers who have children in the home, you then the teaching you do for your family, what is it? It's a, it's a verbal expression of your own self-teaching. Of course that's what your teaching in your family is. It's an expression, it's a proclamation of how you teach yourself. It always is. Whether you're good or bad, that's what it is. So you want to be self-taught to the best of your ability, and then all of your other teaching will come out of the teaching you've been giving yourself. So Jesus is a teacher. Now let's notice several things about his teaching, and this is not from this text. This is more generic, and I may have missed a couple of things, and if so, you can correct me later. But first of all, it seems to me that Jesus teaches biblically. And the reason I say that is if you just look at the Sermon on the Mount, the substance of what Jesus is teaching from in that case is what? The Ten Commandments, isn't it? The whole chapter 5 is basically an exposition of the Ten Commandments. So it seems to me that often 
Jesus teaches expositionally. He takes the Bible, the Old Testament, and he says to us, this is what it means. When you look at Romans, which we did years ago when we started Amen, we took two years to go through Romans. What is it? It's Paul's, Paul's uh, interpretation of the Old Testament. That's what Romans is. It's a Christ-centered interpretation of the Old Testament. You find massive allusions to the Old Testament in Romans. Why? Paul is saying, first of all to his Jewish friends, this is what the Bible was teaching us all along. Here's Christ and here's what the Old Testament was already saying about Him, pointing to Him. And here's then what His crucifixion and resurrection mean. So being biblical in His teaching. And so for those of you who teach Sunday school or teach in small groups or other venues, of course, there are moments when we say, okay, let's talk about sex or let's, let's talk about business ethics or let's you know, talk about uh, evangelism. There are times when we do things topically. But generally speaking, it seems to me, if you're a regular teacher somewhere, you want to be sure that your, your meat and potatoes are uh, expositions of biblical texts, the very Word of God. That becomes your meat and taters. And that's what it was for Jesus, it seems to me. Secondly, you'll notice that he was theocentric. He taught theocentrically. That is, he taught, he taught us God. Uh, we're told in John 1, 18, that no one's seen God. But uh, God the Son has made him fully known. Or literally, uh, in the language, God the Son has exegeted the Father. So the Lord Jesus Christ displayed who God is. You want to know what God is like? Jesus Christ, that's what He's like. Jesus Christ has fully displayed for us who God is. So Jesus' teachings were primarily about God. And when you think about what the Bible is teaching us, of course we have all kinds of ethical injunctions in the Bible. But primarily, what are you being told? You're told about the great and awesome character of God and His mighty deeds in history. How His eternal decrees have come into play right here in time and space from creation providence in all of history, and of course the great redemptive story consummated in the very presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's about God. And in Jesus' teaching you find the same thing. Thirdly, Jesus taught illustratively. My friend Steve Brown always says, if you, if you can't illustrate a point, don't even make it. Because if you can't illustrate it, you don't understand it. That's a great point. So until in your teaching, and we're just taking a few minutes to talk about you who are in teaching posts, because this is important, to take a real look at Jesus as model teacher. Jesus taught illustratively. Once again, just look at the Sermon on the Mount. Remember how he closes it. Well, let's talk about a wise person and an unwise person. And he could have said, he could have just said, you know, a wise person is one who hears the Word of God and puts it into practice. An unwise person is a person who hears but doesn't put it into practice. You say, oh, that's wonderful, that's true, it's marvelous. But he goes beyond that, doesn't he? A wise person is like a house built upon a rock. And when the storms come and beat against that house, it stands firm because it's built upon the rock. There's a wise person. A foolish person built his house on the sand. And when the storms come, beat against that house, the house to whoosh goes right off. You can't forget that. <laughs> now, if you're like me, you just look at an illustrator like that and go, oh man, I could never do that. Why don't I think of illustrations like that? Uh, Jesus was uh, an exquisite uh, illustrator. But at least don't get discouraged. Uh, be charmed into doing the best you can do. And just realize that until you've thought through a concept long enough and contemplated it, until at least there's a little window, a little way you can illustrate it, you probably don't quite yet understand exactly what he's saying, what the Bible's saying. And in your teaching, I think Steve Brown's uh, warning is probably a good one. If you can't illustrate it, just go to the next point. <laughs> you know, because probably no one's going to understand it or remember it. Now, the best illustrations in your teaching are not these real long stories that people get wrapped up into. And, of course, you know how much fun it is to hear a story. And when you hear a, when you hear a preacher who can really tell stories, man, you come away from that sermon, man, those are great stories. 
Man, I was just crying like a baby. Or I was laughing so hard. I, was, I remember I, I was, as a young believer, I heard a story one time. I almost literally fell into the aisle. It was so funny. I'll never forget that story. I have no idea what he was teaching us, but I'll never forget the story. And the problem is, if you're a really good storyteller, you can just get lost in your own story, and your people lose the point. Check Jesus out on his stories, his parables. He doesn't lose the point, and he doesn't get lost in the story. Even a long one, like, like the Good Samaritan, you never lose the point. It's not too long, and it's not just filled with things that just make you uproariously humored, nor things that just cause you to dissolve into tears. That's not the point of the stories. The story is to open up a window where you can clearly see yourself and have the point of what he's saying applied to you. Who is your neighbor? Well, let me tell you who your neighbor is. You'll never forget it, who your neighbor is. Because he opened up a window. Uh, this is, this is the, what, what illustrations do. They're windows of light that illuminate the point you were making. And that's what you want to be sure your illustrations do. Notice, fourthly, that Jesus taught practically. He never just gave us abstract theology with no point. Now, look, I do believe abstract theology is extremely important. And we need some people in the church who spend a lot of time on abstract theology. Abstract theology is just trying to put the Word of God into succinct truths that we can agree to and live our lives by. So I believe in abstract theology. But in teaching, the teaching, regular teaching ministry, the uh, ideas that we're conveying not only must be illustrated well, but must be applied well. Go and do likewise. So I can tell you this great story about the, the Good Samaritan, but then I need to say to you, you need to be not like the priests and the Levite, you need to be like the Samaritan. And so I'm teaching you who is your neighbor. I'm teaching you in a strange way, of course, in that, in that case. But it's always applied. It's, it's look, inf, uh, uh, biblical teaching is not primarily conveying information. It is primarily angling for transformation. You're always looking for transformation. So, for example, if, if I'm coming to this platform this morning, one of you uh, might stop me and say, what's your point this morning? If I say uh, my point is that Jesus is a marvelous teacher, well, that would be true, and it represents the text, but it's not the real point of what I'm coming here to do. What I'm coming here to do is to say my real point this morning is for every single one of us to leave here as missionaries for Jesus Christ. That's my point. So you see that in biblical teaching, your point is always a practical point. It's a transformative point. So that everything I have to say this morning is for the point of moving all of us, beginning with the teacher, moving all of us to be more effective missionaries in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's my point. So it's a practical point. So if I mention anything abstract or ideal, or if I illustrate anything, it's all for the purpose of that practical point. So now we're in teaching. This is a, what we call a sub-point of my main point. If we're all going to be missionaries of Jesus Christ, we must all be teachers, not professional teachers like me, but we must all be teachers. So how do I illustrate that? with the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. You get my point. When Jesus was teaching, he was always going for transformation. He always wanted his disciples to follow him. And all of his teaching was to that effect. So when you're teaching, be aware not just of your doctrinal point that you're making, even if it's in your personal devotions. It's not just what are you learning doctrinally in that text. It's what are you learning about how your life is to be transformed? from that text. So that when you're talking to your Sunday school class or your small group and you're sharing something, think about the transformative impact of that text. That's what Jesus did. Uh, fifthly, and there's so many things we could say about Jesus' teaching, but we'll stop with this one. He taught spiritually. What do I mean by that? A couple of things. One is Jesus 
always angled for the heart. That was bullseye for him because he knew if he got your heart, your hands, your feet, your mouth, everything else was going to follow if he got your heart. And so when you're teaching, be sure and go for the heart. It's not, it's not good enough in your teaching to teach uh, your men's Sunday school class how to say something nice to their wives every day. Now, that would be a very good thing. If every man in your group would say something nice to their wives today, that'd be wonderful. It'd be better than probably any other group. But if you don't address the heart, you're going to get one little hiccup of one good day from that knucklehead, and you won't get anything out out of him going forward. You have to change his heart. You have to ask God to change his heart, and God's means to change his heart is the Word of God. So what you have to do then, if you're going to talk about speaking kindly to your wife, you then look at why don't you speak kindly to your wife? Look at the heart issues. What's going on in our hearts when we're brusque or abrupt or unkind to our wives? What kind of self-centeredness is going on in there? And you address that issue of the heart. That's the way Jesus did it. He says, from the heart the mouth speaks. That was the kind of teaching he did. Look at the Sermon on the Mount. It's not just a matter of not killing someone. You must love them from your heart. How about the apostles when they tell us to love one another from the heart? So your feelings do matter. Feelings are not just feelings. Feelings can be very destructive if you don't rein them in. So we start with our our deepest intentions and attitudes of the heart, and we work outwardly. Life is lived from the heart out. That's Jesus' teaching. So when you're teaching... Be sure that your illustrations and applications especially go straight to the heart. And we can look at it here as a matter of the heart. Why do we not teach? Well, there are lots of reasons we don't like to teach. Number one, we don't like to display our ignorance. You know, uh, you all are very, very good about taking responsibility for what's said here. If I misspeak, I get emails and pushback from you guys, and I'm supposed to. And we don't like that, do we? And so when you first start out teaching, you're saying all kinds of stuff. I remember when I was teaching the junior highs after I was converted for less than a year, and I had Abraham married to Rachel and you know, Isaac to Sarah, and, and they kept Mr. Wilson. I think it's a little you know, different from that. Oh, yeah, well, whatever. You know, uh, you know, it's very embarrassing, isn't it? So we don't want to teach because we don't want to display our ignorance. We don't want to teach because once you start teaching someone, get this, you uh, begin to get involved in their lives and their problems become your problems. Well, I don't want to be fooling around with your problems, you may say. I don't want to know about all that. Well, if you don't, then don't teach because teaching gets you involved in people's lives. And if you teach them in public in a Sunday school class, it won't be long before they want to go to lunch and share their heart with you and tell you their problems. And now you're going to be involved in those lives. So sometimes it's our desire to be insulated from other people that keeps us from teaching. And sometimes we don't teach because, frankly, it takes a lot of work to prepare lessons. And it's going to mess up your Saturday night, big time, if you teach. Or whatever night it is before you're teaching. Some, for some people, like my wife, if she teaches in public, it'll mess up a whole month thinking about that talk. So I understand. But they're all, once again, we're talking about the heart. You see, when, if you're going to be a teacher, you've got to get to the heart. What are you trying to do and why are you trying to do it? Well, Jesus taught spiritually. So in the first respect of his spiritual teaching, he went to the heart. Secondly, with respect to the spirituality of his teaching, all of his teaching had to do ultimately with your relationship with God your Father. It ultimately has to do with your bringing glory to him. He says, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works. Why? To give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So, When people are converted and discipled by the teaching of the Word of God, what is happening, gentlemen, is that God the Father is being glorified. And the teacher takes great delight in seeing people's lives transformed, not only for their good, but for the glory of God. And that is, as Paul said about himself, the offering that the teacher offers up to God. That's part of our gift to him. And it gives us great joy in seeing lives changed as a result of the teaching of the Word of God. You see that in Jesus' life. He takes great joy when His disciples come back 
from their mission escapade. And they come back and tell him about all the people that were converted and all the powers that were displayed. And Jesus almost laughs with joy as he thinks about how the Father has chosen such weak ones to be his disciples. Great joy in it. And that's the spirituality of his teaching. It is God-centered and God-motivated. Now notice secondly in Jesus' ministry, he not only was an expert teacher and devoted himself to teaching, but he was a preacher. You say, well, why in the world would Matthew uh, put these in two different categories? Uh, aren't they very closely related? Well, of course they are. They both deal with truth. They both deal with the Word of God. Uh, they both deal with verbal expression. Uh, they are both expositional in that sense. But there are some differences that we notice. And certainly you notice that one is imperative versus indicative. In other words... When you're teaching, you can say, okay, this is what Jesus says and these are the applications of it and here's what you might consider. But preaching is, you must, <laughs> right? It's imperative. You must do this. You must be born again, says the preacher. You must receive Jesus Christ as Savior. So it's in your face. It's imperative. We all recognize the difference there between preaching and teaching. It's hortatory versus didactic. Didactic is just a word... Uh, it comes from the Greek that means to be teaching. Hortatory means to uh, encourage or exhort. And so the preacher is a little bit like uh, the football coach at halftime, isn't he? Uh, so when you get preaching, you kind of know you're getting it. You say, man, you just went from teaching to preaching. And then you say, you went from preaching to meddling. Uh, you, we, we all know what it is. Uh, thirdly, um, one is explanation, the other is proclamation. This is important about preaching. Uh, Teaching, I can explain the Sermon on the Mount. But if I'm preaching, I'm, I'm, I'm up on a platform. That's the reason we have pulpits, because they're meant to be platforms for the herald to get up and make an announcement. Ladies and gentlemen, I have an announcement to make this morning. Jesus Christ is Lord. That's preaching, right? So I'm announcing something to you. It's meant to come to you that way. And sometimes we say, why doesn't the guy just get down and just talk to us, you know, in an ordinary voice and just have a little conversation? Well, there's nothing wrong with that. Preaching can be done that way. But there's nothing wrong also with stepping up on the platform and getting behind the pulpit and making an announcement. There's a sense in which the gospel, the good news, is meant to be announced. In fact, if you look in Isaiah, that's how the announcement was given, by a herald who goes ahead of the king to say, hey everybody, the king's coming. Get this place ready. Make every road flat. Get rid of all the rocks. Clean up the cities. He's coming. That's what the herald does. That's preaching. Uh, and the good news is, our God is alive. He reigns. Don't worry about these sloppy nations out here that are giving you chaos. Don't worry about those people. God is alive and he's coming. That's the good news. So... Uh, preaching is, in, in some sense, it's, it's taking the robe of a, of a herald and presenting it again to the people. You say, well, these people don't need that announcement. They heard that in, in Sunday school when they were in the first grade. Oh, yes, you need to hear it again. <laughs> Your feet have been real dusty out there. You've been involved in some things that didn't sound like you believed you thought he was coming this past week. Well, I got another announcement for you this week. He's coming. He is Lord. He is in charge. We all need to hear that announcement. So some of you are in churches where that component of preaching is more played out more dramatically. Fine, get into it. There's real value to hearing the announcement again and again. The old saints just say, teach me that old, old story. Preach me that old, old story over and over again. You need to hear that announcement. Some of you are in a more conversational setting. Be sure that you don't fail to hear it as an announcement every Sunday. That's the, that's the difference between preaching and teaching, and Jesus did both. He proclaimed and announced, and he also taught, got down in the nitty-gritty, and, and got down and conversationally taught people. Notice it's also theocratic versus autocratic, and what I mean by this is that uh, preaching is really a proclaiming God. It's not ultimately proclaiming seven steps to have a better marriage 
or five important principles in business ethics. Preaching is primarily about him. It's theocentric. It's not autocentric. Uh, it's theocratic. In other words, uh, theocratic means that God is ruler. Uh, theocracy is uh, government by God. And basically what the preacher is announcing is that there is one government in the world. There is one ruler of the world, and it is Christ, the Son of God. And so we're announcing a government. Uh, and you just like it says in Isaiah 9, 6, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and he will establish justice and righteousness. And we're announcing that kingdom. Now that brings us to really probably what is the heart of preaching. At the heart of preaching, we are announcing a kingdom. And you'll see that when Jesus goes preaching, he is proclaiming the kingdom of God. The time has come, the time is at hand. The kingdom, or time has come, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel, the good news. Repent and believe that the king does rule and the king is coming and that he's establishing his kingdom. You need to repent of everything that doesn't believe that. Every activity, every thought, every relationship that doesn't reflect that you believe that Jesus Christ is king and that he is coming to consummate his kingdom, get rid of it. Get your life in order under the, the aegis of the kingdom. That's what the gospel is basically saying. Uh, so above all other distinctives of, the gospel, uh, of preaching, preaching is fundamentally about the kingdom of God and, of course, the king of that kingdom. Uh, and especially we'll notice in Romans 3 that when we talk about the kingdom, we talk about when Jesus comes and we have acted like his enemies, he's provided a way for us to be reconciled to him. And, of course, it, what Paul teaches us in Romans 3 is that there's no way for you to do that by your behavior. Your religious behavior, your ethical behavior, there's no way to get reconciled. Impossible. The only way to be reconciled is to trust in the righteousness of his son that's imputed to you upon faith, to trust in the work of Jesus Christ on Calvary for the forgiveness of all your treason against the king. And if you'll trust in him and what he's provided for you to be reconciled, you then are reconciled to the king of the kingdom. See, that's preaching. God is, he's in charge, he's establishing a kingdom, he is on his way, and you are in trouble. And here is the way to get reconciled to the king. Now there's, there's the essence of gospel preaching, and therefore that leads us then to put our faith in Jesus Christ. Okay, Jesus was expert at that, and he calls all of us to do it as well. Thirdly, notice that he was in the healing ministry, healing every disease and every affliction. Now, there's lots of debate, you know, in our time about healing and the legitimacy of healing and so on. Uh, I noticed in J. Vernon McGee's commentary on Matthew, he said he told, he told his congregation one time, if anybody here can prove that you've been healed by a faith healer, I'll give you $100. He said he's been doing this for years and no one's ever earned their $100. <laughs> Now, I'm not saying that faith healers don't heal, but J. Vernon McGee was. Uh, what I'm saying is that I, what I notice is that God does heal, and I've had experiences with this where we have prayed for people that the doctors gave up on, literally. Uh, I can remember one young man, he was told his cancer was so radical, so fast-growing, he just needed to get his affairs in order, and that man's still leading his family today 20 years later. Um, and we, we had a prayer service for him. We anointed him with oil. And we cried out for mercy for him, for his young wife, and their, and their three kids. And he's alive today. So, and the church was packed with people laying hands on that guy, praying for him. Now, that's an unusual circumstance in Presbyterian circles. I realize this. But I've seen it. That would be one dramatic case. There have been other cases. However, I've seen a lot of cases. I've seen many more cases where... I've wept in prayer for people, and they've died on me over and over again. You say, well, what, what's, what's the deal here? Does he heal or doesn't he heal? Yes, of course he heals. And he heals in his own time and in his own way. And we're told in Psalm 103 that we should bless the Lord, O my soul, uh, bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, for he forgives all of our sins and heals all of our diseases. 
And we're told in Matthew 8 that He healed because He took on our infirmities and weaknesses in the atonement. So when Jesus Christ died for us, in the, the atonement itself is healing virtue. And I'm telling you, one day I'm going to be healed completely. And when Jesus Christ comes back, when the gospel preaching is fulfilled, I told you the king is ruler, he's coming back, and he's going to do it. And when he comes back, he's coming with healing in his hands. And he's going to heal everybody of every disease, all of his people, every disease of all of his people. So the big complaint we have is, well, he's not doing it right now. Where is he when I, when I want him? Well, you're not the Lord. He is. And He will heal you in His good time. He's already made you a promise. And it's not your role to complain about when He gets the job done. He's going to do the job when it's best for you. It's best for everybody around you. And it is ultimately best for the glory of God. That's when He's going to do it. And He will do it. But He'll do it in a way that best glorifies Himself. So that's Jesus. He's in the healing business. Now when Jesus was here... He healed about 30 times in three years. I mean, just healings right and left, it seems. Every month there was a healing somewhere. The apostles, on the other hand, we have about 10 cases of their uh, healing over the scope of about 30 years. And with you, it seems to be quite a bit less. (laughs) So we notice when Jesus is here bodily, healings break out right and left. When he comes back bodily, gentlemen, the same thing's going to happen. You're going to see it perfectly. There's going to be no lack of faith to begin with. And there's going to be perfect healing in every case when He comes in the second coming. Uh, That's the healing ministry, and we're to be involved in it right now. Every disease, every weakness, every impoverishment, every deficiency, everything. The gospel has something to say about it. Why? Because the king's business is to bring shalom to the entire community of Christ in every respect. And so right now it's our business to be concerned about all of those things. Well, we'll pick up next week with verse 36. Yes, verse 36. Uh, and we've only covered two points today. I guess we covered one verse, didn't we? Well, what do you know? You can say, honey, boy, we had a great verse today. I don't remember what it was, but man, it took us an hour. I know that. Uh, let's pray together. Uh, Lord Jesus Christ, thank you for coming to fulfill the mission of our God and Father perfectly and to show us what it is, teaching and preaching and healing, caring for people in their need. Help us, Lord, to be your people, to walk in your steps, to take up the word of the gospel, to take up the Bible, to take up the hands and the feet and the ministry of the heart, that seeks to heal people of every deficiency, every impoverishment, every disease, everything wrong in this world becomes our concern, O Lord. May we go forward with the same ministry that you gave us 2,000 years ago and have been giving us through the years through the ministry of your church. Oh, we praise you and thank you for that ministry and ask that we may carry it out in Jesus' name. Amen.